0: Welcome to the New Testament Review,
1: where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship.
0: I'm Ian Mills.
1: I'm Laura Robinson.
0: And we are both PhD candidates at Duke University.
1: Today's text is the 1998 book, The Case for Christ, a journalist's personal investigation of the evidence for Jesus by Lee Strobel.
0: Now you're expecting us to start laughing here, like we did last year, (laughs) but no, April fools... We're doing this.
1: <laughs> the joke is on you. <laughs> we're we, going to review this book.
0: Laura and I, while writing our dissertations, took the time to actually reread Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ and record an actual review of this, as if it were, New Testament scholarship.
1: Ian, this is the least fun I've ever had prepping for this show. <laughs> I hated this.
0: Laura, what is Lee Strobel arguing in this book?
1: Lee Strobel is arguing that the Gospels are historically reliable, that Jesus was God, and that you should become a Christian in light of the the data he provides.
0: Strobel gives several interviews with people he represents as experts and premier scholars on the relevant topics, and from these builds what he calls a case for Christ, that is that Jesus was God, died, rose again, and you, dear reader, should accept him as your personal Lord and Savior.
1: And, like, I'm not even mad about the conclusion. I think you can be a Christian and still find this very frustrating. <laughs>
0: Laura and I have discussed this in our Q&A episode, our mailbag episode, no. but we're both practicing Christians. We go to different churches now, but but Laura is literally married to a pastor. And I'm mm-hmm. married to a pastor's daughter and have lots of pastors in my extended family
1: i got both my master's degrees at whedon college yeah. you know i i and i was honestly really surprised how irritated this book made me i was really expecting this book to be basically uh, on the conservative end of acceptable
0: dear listener it was not Um,
1: no right that's what that's kind of what i came to this book expecting to find yeah
0: so we're going to work through this book we're not obviously going to cover everything because it's sort of a shotgun approach and he he discusses three or four topics a page sometimes um But we're going to try to represent some of the most important claims but first we want to talk about the sort of quasi autobiographical and like fundamentally really deceptive presentation of the whole narrative
1: yeah, This was my biggest problem with the whole book. Like, this is the thing that has the least to do with my historical training, but this is the part that I found the most upsetting. Lee Strobel he tells us in the very beginning of the book, in the introduction, that his wife first became a Christian, he was very skeptical, and then he became a Christian. He specifies that this happened in 1981, and he says that he did this as a result of his investigations into the historical truths of Christianity. This book was written in 1998. So we already have a huge gap between the conversion and the production of this actual book. Whatever you're going to call the investigation that he went through in 1981 to become a Christian, it's not the investigation that's in this book. Most of the people he interviews were not active scholars in the 70s and 80s. But he actually seems to deliberately claim repeatedly that he was a skeptic when he was doing these interviews.
0: He, over and yeah. over again throughout the interviews, he represents himself as the skeptic. He says he doesn't, he's not sure he quite buys this. And he he glances yeah. at Blomberg with an air of incredulity and things like that. He says He says he needs yeah. to confront the Jesus Seminar itself head on. And so he goes and interviews Greg Boyd. He doesn't go and interview a member of the Jesus Seminar. He goes and interviews a pastor who's written popular works against the Jesus Seminar. And in the interview, he represents himself as the skeptic, as the person who doesn't believe. But, mind you, Lee Strobel, who is our apparent stand-in for the Jesus Seminar, has been a pastor in Illinois for 10 years at this point. Yeah. It's as if we are supposed to buy that this 10-year pastor, Lee Strobel, is the skeptic. It is pervasive through these interviews and incredibly deceptive. Um, He pretends he's seeking out best experts in the field, that he is going to confront the evidence for and against the faith, and goes and interviews exclusively the most conservative members of the guild and a handful of explicit Christian apologists. Far from interviewing a member of the Jesus Seminar or going and talking to Bart Ehrman or John Dominic Crossan or someone like that, he goes and talks to Craig Blomberg, who has said in interviews that before he takes on any project, the only question he asks himself is how can he use this as an argument in favor of Christianity?
1: The the biggest issue with this book is this book is not what it says it is. This book says that it is a critical investigation into the historical claims of Christianity as that were enough to win over a skeptic. That's just, that that, that is not true. And the way in which Strobel's biography as a convert from atheism to Christianity is deployed is inherently deceptive. And I actually think there's some very good evidence for this in the reception history of this book. this book has a film adaptation, which follows the book quite closely in presenting the investigative process that Strobel goes through as being the cause of his conversion, but they set the interviews in the late 70s, which is when Strobel actually did become a Christian, but that's not when these interviews took place.
0: Setting aside the complete dishonesty of this book and the fact that he only engages with Christian apologists, although Bruce Metzger (laughs) has to be an asterisk on this.
1: And I really do want to make that clear, is that... The reason why I thought we should do this book at all is because of the presence of people like Bruce Metzger in it. Bruce Metzger actually was probably the best text critic in the 90s that you could have talked to, but he remains a striking exception in this book, not the rule. And even then, Metzger's work is, I I think, misapplied.
0: Unquestionably. The way Struble frames his interview with Metzger is deceptive. Let's start with the first interview in this book. The interview with Craig Blomberg, which is on the historical reliability of the Gospels and the area that Laura and I are both most qualified to discuss. Craig Blomberg, who is a self described Christian apologist, argues that the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses and therefore historically reliable in every detail. He argues that there isn't time for mythology to develop because Matthew was written by the disciple Matthew, Mark was written by Mark, a companion of Peter, etc.
1: And then this chapter really becomes foundational for everything else that happens in the book. By starting with, the Gospels are written by eyewitnesses, therefore everything in the Gospels is historically accurate, therefore everything that is presented about Jesus in the Gospels is historical fact. This is basically the foundation of the rest of the text. So when you get to things like Jesus said he was God, h- how do you prove that? Well, you pull quotes from the Gospels because they're all perfectly historically accurate because they're written by honest eyewitnesses. So this chapter is basically the foundation of the whole book.
0: This is supported with such arguments as Popius says Mark wrote everything down and did not lie therefore we should believe it and strobel who is representing himself as an incredulous skeptic says yeah that sounds about right um but let's look at one of the more sophisticated arguments which is his comparison with the lives of alexander the great laura would you read the passage
1: the two earliest biographies of alexander the great were written by arian and plutarch more than 400 years after alexander's death in 323 bc Yet, historians consider them to be generally trustworthy. Yes, legendary material about Alexander did develop over time, but it was only in the centuries after these two writers. In other words, the first 500 years kept Alexander's story pretty much intact. Legendary material began to emerge over the next 500 years.
0: So here's the problem when an apologist who admits that he's not particularly interested in ancient history outside of its apologetic purposes tries to make a historical analogy. If you go open one of these biographies that doesn't contain any miraculous mythological or supernatural events and read, say, through the second paragraph, you discover a series of miracles that surround the birth of Alexander. For instance, a snake conceiving Alexander with his mother, as viewed by Philip, his father, at the Apollo at Delphi. Now, to discover this... Blomberg doesn't need to be any more of an expert on Alexander the Great than I am. What he needs to do is actually read his primary sources.
1: There's several layers on which this is a problem. One is that it's just not true, that there aren't legendary accretions in the in the earliest biographies of Alexander. The second strat of issue I would have is that the analogy breaks down, because if it means... If Blomberg's point is that it takes centuries for legendary material to develop, that's clearly not true in the Christian tradition, because we have things like the Infancy Gospel of Thomas definitely earlier than 700-800 years after the life of jesus oh, legendary I, material about the gospels starts to show up very early and we have tons in christian of christian tradition we have
0: tons of non-christian stories and sources talking about contemporary events and people who have fantastic miraculous mythological quote-unquote events happening in their own lives he claims that sources written within roughly a hundred years don't include mythological features Whether or not you believe these mythological claims that, you know, as according to Lucian, demon acts can go months without eating, it is simply not true that it takes hundreds of years for fantastic elements to appear in sources.
1: So this is also just, I think, a more fundamental issue with apologetics. I think a lot of times how apologists deal with these materials is that they don't divide sources the way that historians do they they divide between Christian and non-Christian sources. So here's what I mean by this: the claim in this text is that historians treat Jesus's biographies as unreliable because they have this legendary material, but they treat the lives of Alexander as reliable because they're biased against Christianity. I think is the implication, and I would actually just say that that whole thing is false, wrong in I both think its that terms. The, Right. Like I actually think that that's a misunderstanding of both how classics work and how New Testament scholarship works. I actually think that for the most part historians think the biographies of Jesus are reliable in about the same way that the biographies of Alexander are. Like they're probably correct in the generals, you know, Jesus is raised in Nazareth, he starts being a charismatic preacher in in his 30s, he's baptized by John the Baptist, he has 12 disciples, he goes around teaching, he's known as a miracle worker. He goes to Jerusalem, he runs afoul of the authorities, crucifies, dies. I actually think that most historians would say that that general shape is pretty accurate. And in this way, it's actually a lot like the biographies of Alexander, that the general shape is mostly trusted, but in the particulars, we've probably lost a lot of the details.
0: Apologists try to impose a binary that historians deem texts either reliable or unreliable. And that is simply not how any historian writing in the academy today or for the last, I don't know how many years, treats sources. You don't pick up Plutarch's biography of Alexander and debate whether or not you're going to stamp this thing as reliable eyewitness testimony or as fan fiction. You go through and you different elements in different ways according to different methodologies uh this is a rhetorical strategy of apologists that really misrepresents how real historians work
1: yeah we're not going to be able to talk about every claim in this book but i think if i had to just generally characterize the material of this book i'd say that it falls under about four categories one is statements that are on the conservative end of acceptable, right? So this would be the idea that Mark was written within a generation of Jesus. You know, some people might say it's closer to 40, 45 years after Jesus. Some people might say it's closer to 30. The conservative option is that it's closer to 30, you know, conservative end of acceptable. The second category of claims I would describe in this book is, is being wrong by degrees. Like they're starting from something that is true, and then there's just something slightly off about the way it's applied. I think a lot of the text criticism data falls into this category. It is true, as Metzger says, that New Testament text critics have a embarrassment of riches to work from. We have a lot of New Testament texts that we can use to do text criticism with. That doesn't mean that the text was well-preserved.
0: Or, and this might be slipping into your third category, but Strobel implies by that that we should trust the the content of the text because it was reliably preserved yeah. and that's just simply that doesn't follow you can have the autograph of a text that is littered with falsifications or if we recovered the autograph of lucian's a true story wherein he describes people flying to the moon it doesn't mean we have to believe that now that we have perfect textual transmission
1: no, for sure. The The third category I would say is wrong by misapplication or misdirection. Uh, I would put some of the claims about gospel authorship under this category. When asked whether or not the gospels are correctly attributed in, in their canonical forms, like Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, the claim that this book makes is that, well, there were no competitors for other names attached to it. That's a true statement. Like, there's no, there's no occasion where the Gospel of Luke is attributed to somebody, like, named Timothy. But it's also, the fact that it's true is deployed in a very false way. Uh, Nobody is saying that somebody else wrote Luke and we could go find his name. It's that the text is originally anonymous. And we have to do some historical work to figure out where these attributions came from. So that's, I would call that wrong and misapplication. Right, um, it's just distracting
0: then, from the actual kinds of arguments that historical critical scholars make.
1: Right, and then you just have the fourth category, which is just outright <laughs> falsehoods. It's <laughs> things that are just wrong.
0: Let me give another example of outright falsehoods, if I may. Strobel says that Extra canonical texts that were attributed to the apostles or in a couple of cases unattributed were not considered authoritative by almost any church fathers. Yeah. This is false. This is simply not true. The Apocalypse of Peter enjoys wide acceptance in the early church. We have canon lists that include this. We have people who cite this as authoritative. The Epistle of Barnabas is cited as authoritative by several church fathers. It appears in some of our oldest complete Bibles. Third Corinthians... One of my favorite examples. Um, That is a third letter purportedly written by Paul to Corinth is quoted as authoritative by several fathers in the Syriac church. And Ephraim says, Ephraim, a major church father, says only the heretics deny that third Corinthians was written by Paul and they do yep. this because it condemns their heresy. Um, he says all the good Orthodox Christians, accept third Corinthians as authentic. The Diatessaron, which is not attributed to anyone, but some early Syriac church fathers attributed it to Jesus is used liturgically until the fourth or fifth century, at which point it is removed from the churches. Strobel's claim is false.
1: I think when you get into the canon, the canon list, you get into a lot of situations where issues are being conflated in a way that is kind of constantly distracting from the question. When he gets to the, to Thomas, you know, Strobel starts with asking the question, are, are the four canonical gospels the best witnesses we have to the historical Jesus? But then this bleeds almost immediately into whether or not Thomas should have been part of the canon. Which is not the same question at all. Should something be part of the canon is a is a faith question. I don't think Thomas is a reliable witness to the historical Jesus. I think it's dependent on the synoptic gospels. But the the kinds of data that get pulled to contradict this are things like, well, Jesus has pantheistic sayings in Thomas, right. which well, that's not relevant data. That's not that's that that doesn't help us answer the question of whether or not this is historically reliable about Jesus. It seems like the question he's answering is, should we consider this to be part of the New Testament? But that's not a historical question.
0: Yeah. In his interview with Greg Boyd, Boyd says that scholars are growing increasingly skeptical that Matthew used Mark. And this, as a claim about scholars, is just, again, empirically falsifiable. There are no major scholars working on the synoptic problem right now who are skeptical of Matthew's use of Mark. The Griesbachians really died out 20 years. Um, I suppose they had a resurgence in the 70s, but 20 years before this book was written, there are really good reasons to think Matthew is using Mark. It's not just that they agree a lot on Jesus' teachings, which they do, up to 30 word strings of verbatim agreement, but Matthew and Mark agree verbatim on contextual details descriptions of the environment in the narrative and on editorial interjections in the synoptic apocalypse when jesus is describing sort of the cataclysmic eschaton mark has an interjection let the reader understand and matthew is copying out of mark here matthew is following mark verbatim and copies over this editorial interjection blomberg passingly acknowledges uh, as boyd does not that Matthew definitely was using Mark. The, the author of the Gospel of Matthew was definitely copying out of Mark, but says they're probably independent eyewitnesses who are also using each other. There are lots of problems with this, but one of the most one of the most amusing ones is Matthew copies out of Mark verbatim, the conversion of Matthew. It was call yeah. narrative. That is, Matthew re-narrating his own call narrative, doesn't decide to write it himself, but apparently. <laughs> copies this verbatim out of a book written by another person.
1: So much of this book's insistence that the Gospels are accurate eyewitnesses depends on the accurate attribution of the Gospels, that the names attached to the Gospels are all correct. And this isn't even the argument that people make now when they say that the Gospels are dependent on eyewitnesses. Like, that's not—Richard Bachman has a whole book on the Gospels as eyewitnesses, which, you know, we, we could talk about that— for a whole other show, we will. But his argument in that book is not that Matthew wrote Matthew and therefore all of Matthew is from an eyewitness. It's that there's these eyewitness tradents that are uh, that, that the gospel writers are dependent on. It's not even like the scholarly case for an eyewitness testimony to jesus which is baffling because he doesn't even get into the question of the fact that matthew's name changes which seems like relevant information to talk about
0: that brings up one of my favorite examples one of the arguments blomberg uses is that if gospel authors were picking and choosing and making stuff up and rewriting stuff they would have omitted embarrassing things about jesus um, from their gospels and his two examples are in mark 6 where jesus is unable to heal because of their faith And Jesus' words on the cross being, why have you forsaken me? Now his point is, if gospel authors were exercising theologically motivated creativity, they probably would have omitted or changed this. But he doesn't mention that when Matthew and Luke come along and rewrite these two stories, they do exactly that. Neither Matthew nor Luke repeat that Jesus could not heal. Matthew has Jesus choose not to heal, he would do no miracles, and Luke cuts it out entirely. Similarly, when Luke comes to describe Jesus' final words on the cross, he doesn't, in fact, include this purportedly embarrassing material, but has him quote a different psalm, um, into your hands, I commit my spirit. That is, gospel authors in the canon do exactly what Blomberg says gospel authors don't do. Yeah.
1: You know, I I think part of the issue with this book is that it goes to show even the significant gap between apologetics and conservative scholarship. Because this book is not an accurate representation of conservative scholarship. And that you can take the work of a landmark evangelical scholar like Bruce Metzger and then just make a butchery of it by trying to make it answer questions it's not supposed to answer. By getting irritated at this book... We are not expressing contempt for scholarship done by conservatives or scholarships done by evangelicals. The problem here is not conservative scholarship. The problem here is apologetics. Bruce Metzger is a legendary Bible scholar and an evangelical Bible scholar. And the Metzger chapter in this is a mess because the apologetic lens means that Strobel is trying to make Metzger answer questions that Metzger's scholarship isn't for.
0: Strobel and some of the apologists he interviews are starting with their conclusions and going and looking through scholarship, trying to find ways to make it support what they already believe. And sadly, if you talk to some apologists who sometimes represent themselves as scholars, they will say this is what every scholar does. And I really think that's actually, and genuinely sad. That is, it seems to me that these scholars have never had the experience of having an idea, believing something, having an argument, and going and digging through the scholarship and discovering that they were exactly wrong. The Discovering that the evidence, in fact, points in another direction. Several of my favorite papers I've written, I started arguing the opposite conclusion and ended up flipping on it or you know, changing directions entirely. Uh, and note, I'm not disavowing that people come in with all sorts of commitments and positionality and interests, but what Strobel and Blomberg do is he has, they have a conclusion and they go and try to find historical data that they think will support their conclusions. And in doing so, They woefully misrepresent not only the sources, but in the cases of, like, the Metzger chapter, they misrepresent the scholars they are trying to instrumentalize in service of their apologetic ends.
1: One thing I would really like Christians who are interested in history to understand is that history is normally ambiguous. Historians work with a lot of ambiguity. And the problem with this book is that it is arguing for rigid certainty against other forms of rigid certainty. So the the question of the reliability of the Gospels is, atheists say the Gospels are totally unreliable and completely fiction, but we're here to show that history shows they're completely reliable. And that's that's not where historians come in. Historians neither argue that the Gospels are completely inaccurate or that they're totally accurate. It's that, you know, historians say that the Gospels were written way too late to say anything true about Jesus, but we're here to say that they were written 20 years after Jesus died. Again, the reality is probably somewhere in the middle. They're neither so late that they're useless, and they're neither so early that they're hot off the press headlines. The reality is probably somewhere in the middle. And and I think that this this is something that I think is really lost in apologetics, that there is always this insistence that if the opposite extreme is not true, then if one extreme is not true, then the opposite extreme must be true. And that's just not how history works.
0: Our podcast is dedicated to covering influential works of New Testament scholarship. This book is influential. It is not New Testament scholarship, but we've decided to cover it anyways, partly as an April Fool's joke. We have profoundly disagreed with several of the articles and books we've covered in this podcast. I disagree pretty strongly with Paula Fredrickson's. I disagree really strongly with Burridge's book in particular ways, but I would exhort any and every listener to read frederickson's work not so with this book this book will make you dumber no matter how much you already know about the new testament and new testament scholarship you will almost certainly know less by the time you finish this book it is profoundly deceptive and misrepresenting not only the sources but also the state of new testament scholarship and even the positions of other New Testament scholars.
1: So this is a Blomberg quote from the first chapter. There are plenty of stories of scholars in the New Testament field who have not been Christians, yet through their studying of these very issues have come to faith in Christ. Um, I have never heard a story like that. And I'll tell you why. It's because... People don't get into New Testament studies because they hate the New Testament. There's no reason to spend your whole life studying this thing for peanuts and no job security unless you really care about it. So most people who come to this who come to this field do so because they love the new testament and a lot of them do so because of their religious background or their current religious practice And this book plays christians off against the academy in a way that is fundamentally dishonest
0: to clarify laura and i work with are friends with the whole spectrum of new testament scholarship We have colleagues and dear friends who are atheists, who are Catholic priests, who are evangelicals, who are practicing Jews, practicing Hindus, and all varieties of the agnostic in the middle. But, like Laura said, almost everyone comes to this out of a real genuine interest for the book. And I also have never met a single person who converted to Christianity through the academic study of the New Testament. I've met people whose faiths have changed in a variety of ways. I've met people who've lost their faith. And I've met people who are still practicing the same faith they grew up in. That doesn't mean it's never happened. But Strobel's story, as we've pointed out, is deceptive. He is pretending to be the skeptic, the incredulous... Uh, questioning. In one place, he says that he's worried that the faith of the people he's interviewing might color the representation of the quote-unquote facts. If that's what you're concerned about, why do you interview exclusively people who've published apologetics? Strobel misrepresents his own story and doesn't give us any examples of the same thing happening for other people. And I suspect, in part, that's because there really aren't many examples.
1: If you want to read great scholarship by Christians and see faith and New Testament scholarship working in h- hand in hand, there are so many great scholars to read that aren't this book. Read stuff by Richard Hayes.
0: Read Dale Allison.
1: Read Karen Jobes.
0: Read Susan Eastman.
1: Read Richard Baucom. There are so many great... New Testament scholars who are Christians and who think about their faith critically and historically.
0: Don't read apologetics. It's bad for your understanding of the field. And I, honest to God, believe it's bad for your soul. Happy April Fools, everyone.
1: <laughs> Happy April.
0: Got pretty serious there at the end. Laura and I are recording not in a close quartered sound booth, but in our respective homes, as we stay quarantined from the coronavirus.
1: Sounds like we'll be doing this for a while longer, but we'll, um, we're still gonna be here.
0: Someday Laura and I are gonna get jobs, whether as a barista or as a professor, and we'll probably at that point be living in different states, and we both still plan to keep doing this podcast, so we probably should get used to recording in distance.
1: No, absolutely. It's a drag right now, but we'll figure it out.
0: All right, good to see you, Laura.
1: Good to see you. I